Welcome to the Mind Talks podcast. You're with myself, Nathan, and my co-host, Edwin. Our special guest today is an Olympic medalist for Team GB. Her main event is 400 meter hurdles, but also has competed in 100 meter hurdles, high jump, and the 4x4 relay. She achieved a silver medal in 2006 Commonwealth Games in Melbourne and a bronze medal at the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Currently, she is a public speaker, coach and personal trainer. A warm, warm, warm welcome to Tasha Danvers. Really good to have you on. How are you, Tasha? I'm, I'm delicious. I'm good, man. I'm happy to be here with you, Nathan and Edwin. You know, I love what you guys are doing. You know, it's a, it's a great cause, so I'm happy to be here to support that. Good, yeah, good. yeah, we're yeah, glad, yeah. We're, glad, we're happy to have you. Absolutely, absolutely. We're looking forward to this one. So, Tasha, we have a tradition. We like to take all our guests back. So, what was your first living memory of playing or watching a sport? Living memory, because we're not allowed to use the ones when I was dead. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, living memory. Okay, let me see. Um, you know, it would have to be sports day. I went to Sydney Girls School um, in Sydney, and um, that was that was where sort of my sports career first started. And I was like avoiding the hurdles. I I didn't want to do the hurdles, and my dad kept saying, "Do the hurdles, do the hurdles," because my dad used to run for Hernhill Harriers. And um, I would just do everything but 100 and, you know, everything but the hurdles. So I, I just wasn't winning that. So eventually I did move on. I wasn't <laughs> winning the 100, but eventually I did move on to the hurdles. So I think those school sports days were my first memory. I mean, I remember the ones at Crystal Palace that we used to have our sports days at Crystal Palace. But I do also remember, like, the pre-secondary school, like, the egg and spoon race edition of sports day. I yeah. Well. So I think that those were actually more fun. <laughs> we should have Absolutely. egg and spoon for adults. <laughs> <laughs> I will definitely be involved. Yep. I'll be right there with you. Would you say that you were very athletic from a young age? 100%. Yeah. No, 100%. I was very athletic because... My mum, she was a Croydon Harrier. She used to do the high jump. She used to do the javelin. My dad, like I said, was okay. a Hernhill Harrier. He used to do the 100 hurdles. So if I didn't pick up some genetic makeup for sports, then my mum was doing some shady stuff. So <laughs> somebody else was my dad, who's two parents, like, <laughs> fully athletic. It was, it was meant to be. So from a very young age, I was, you know, very active. And I got into sports through school sports days and then the school seeing oh hang on a minute she might actually have something going on here that is usable so they advised me to sign up for a club and then okay. my basically career as an athlete just kind of grew from that point with um, school sports i remember you know being year three year four and i was still extremely competitive whereas you know when i speak to some of my peers it was just really just participating that counts where where were you was it were you somebody who was quite competitive or it was just you know what i'm just part it's just part of sports day no 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 um I, I, I'm competitive now and I was probably competitive then. Um, I just like to, like, I'm competitive to the point where if there's an old lady driving in the car next to me and she seems like she's getting ahead, I have to drive faster. <laughs> like, if there's a space. If the road, you know, wow. the road in the two lanes, and this lane has cars in, I've got to go to the front of the other lane. Like, I can't, I don't like being second. I don't like being in the back. I don't care. Like, even um, there was a little girl running the 800 or something at the track, and someone said to me, oh, she probably beat you. And I'm like, bring her on. I don't care if she's five. I'll take her out right now. Like, I'm like that competitive. So my guess is I was probably competitive from a very young age anyway. And I think it served me well because it means that I've always wanted to be the best at whatever I was doing. So whether it was school and my grades, whether it was sports, whether it was who I chose as a coach, I always went to the best first. So when I was picking the coach I was going to have after college, I went to, the, I said, I'm going to start here 
the best coach first. If they don't want me, I'll choose the next best because I always wanted to put myself in an environment where I could be with the best. So I, I could be my best. So yeah, yeah, definitely competitive in that respect. So how about you? How about you, Edwin? You com- yeah, are you. I'm are you very, competitive? very competitive. Okay, just checking. What about you, Nathan? Um, I'm not competitive. To, I'm not competitive to the point where <laughs> I'm gonna <laughs> race a granny. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nathan, are you? What are you? Are you competitive or just regular? Oh, oh no, I'm extremely competitive. I think um, friends who are listening to this and know yeah. me personally know I'm yeah. I'm super, super, super competitive. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah, yeah, that's something that's that's innate in me. It doesn't come fr- it doesn't come genetically. Uh, my sister, yeah, she was in athletics, but um, my mom, but me, I am so ultra ultra competitive yeah for sure is that with everything <laughs> <laughs> everything everything oh, Nathan's okay. not, Nathan's not, oh, losing is not what he does <laughs> I feel it I feel that. yeah we're, we're from the same vein <laughs> it's okay how was it like first joining the club like being around people who were training wanting to be successful like you did at the time yeah, you know, it's it's weird because my, my dad was actually a Hernhill Harry. I my first club was South London Harriers. And I vaguely remember that period of time. It was just like get out there or just kind of remember mud and tracks that weren't back then. I know I look young, but back then a lot of the tracks were <laughs> not <laughs> the rubber that they're made out of. They're not they weren't made out of that tartan material they made yeah. out. So it was just like if it got wet, it was just a sludge. So um uh, yeah, I don't remember what it was like being around people, but as I got older and started to get like 17, because I was 17 when I went to my first Grand Prix, which is the circuit for people to, who don't know. That's the circuit where athletes okay. go and you can start getting paid for your races and stuff like that. So my first um, experience with that was 17. And then that's when I start to remember like what it was like to be around people, because at that time, people like Maurice Green, who was like a very well-known 100-meter runner during that period of time. He was on the circuit. Lots of other high-profile. Linford was still on mm-hmm. the circuit. So being around them and, like, you're just this little teenager, it's quite an experience because they they function in a very particular way, which is who I became eventually. But you can see mm-hmm. the difference between your school friends <laughs> who you're racing from point A to point B and these professional athletes who are yeah. doing something on a regimented time, they're eating at certain times, they're going training, they're training like mad people. You're like, okay, that's a whole nother level of situation over there. So it's, um, you know, the older I got, the more I saw it because I was in more and more of those environments. Um, but even like when I started to get into the youth arena where you start competing for your city and you start competing, start competing for London, start mm-hmm. competing for England, and then start competing for the UK, you see the passion and the effort um, increase. But I think when (laughs) I really saw a difference, and I hate to say this, but when I really saw a difference was when I went to America. Whole other mindset. Of course. Um, The way their system is Mm. set up is conducive Mm. to that sort of mindset where you are just driving, driving, driving to be successful. Um, I think what I was in the in the Great Britain team, what I would encounter a lot was people who were just happy to have on the Great Britain uniform, right? So I was like, oh, I made the team, good. Yeah. I can say I made the team, but they never really had any actual goals about what was going to happen next. Okay, I'm just going to go and do my best. Yeah. Well, what is the best you want to do? Whereas, like, even I was talking to my ex-husband, who was my coach when I meddled yesterday about the mindset of some of the people he's been around. And he talked about Maurice Green in particular. He said, you know, Maurice was a person who, like, in training, he's training for A, B, C, D, and E. And when he went to compete, he's like, okay, today, guess what's going to happen? A, B, C, D, and E. Which is so different from someone who's like, okay, well, I'm here today. Let's see what happens. Totally different mindset. So I was used to the, let's see what happens. And... Yeah. 
It's interesting you say that because I, I remember some of your interviews at the time, if you had a bad race, and I remember you not being happy, but then there's other people I've seen not have a bad race and like, oh, well, yeah, it is what it is, and they just move on. And I'm thinking, no, you're, if you're there, like, you should want to be there. You should want, like, you should want to push yeah. forward. Yeah. That laissez-faire attitude was definitely not present because in America, once I had got to America and I started competing for university, the people who recruited you to be there, their job is on the line if you don't perform. So, you know, there's a lot of pressure mm. from all sides for everyone to perform. And I remember distinctively when I arrived, everything was new to me. You can imagine you're 18 years old, you're in a completely different country. You've never been to this country before. And some of the girls were not scholarship athletes. So they had a different kind of approach to what was going on. They were more of the laissez-faire type. So I come and I'm just doing my sessions like, like we do. Me, Nathan knows, Edwin, you know, like when you go in for it, like when you have a training session, you're not there just to waste time. You're there to get in, put money in the bank so you can cash it later. So I'm training, I'm doing what I'm asked, uh, what's being asked of me from my coaches. And it got to a point where the other girls were like, why are you going so fast? If you go so fast, you're going to have to, you know, we're going to, we're going to be too tired. So it's going to be, the whole week's going to be hard. So don't go so fast. And I was just like, okay. So I started like putting myself to the back. Cause I'm like, I'm mm-hmm. new here. I'm, I ain't trying to make enemies. So I started going to the back of the group. Mm-hmm. My coach instantly, he was like, what's going on? I said, what do you mean? He's like, why are you suddenly at the back of the thing? You, I, I already know you can run faster than that. I was like, well, you know, he's like, listen, then those girls will not be there when you're at the start line of your race and that gun goes off, it's going to be just you. So you get to where you're supposed to be because that's why I brought you here. I brought you here because I know you can do what's going to be expected of you. And so it is so important, like who's around you and how much you let what's in your environment affect you because, you know, as you guys know, it, it can literally change your future, your mindset and your approach and your attitude to your craft, your career. I think one of the things that like Edwin, that I used to see when I used to watch interviews, I used to, you know, be really, really, really upset because it's okay to say, actually, I had a really poor race and this is what I'm going to do, you know, in the next race, etc. And one of the things that, I've spoken to, well, both Ed and I have spoken to um, our American guests is where does this mindset come from? So I guess um, you moving and moving from, you know, Great Britain and going over to America, I want you to really explore like your first big cultural shock. And when I mean culture shock, I don't mean about the food in terms of competition. So what was your first major culture shock where you realized, wow, this 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 is this isn't this isn't Great Britain anymore. I'm not in South London anymore. I'm I'm in, I'm in a big league. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, you mean collegiately or professionally or or either or? Well, I'll go with either or. Either or would be great. Right. So, I was trained. If anyone knows, Tony Campbell was a very well known um, hurdler back in the day for the United States of America. He actually should have been at the Olympics that they boycotted. He would have done very well, but America had boycotted those Olympics, so he didn't get to go to those Mm -hmm. Olympics. Anyway, when I arrived at USC, the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, he was the coach there. And I had been coached by Judy Vernon, who um, is a coach out of of the United Kingdom, and she had been a Commonwealth champion, and she was very hands-on. She's very motherly, like, okay, we're going to do this. And she was yeah. American, but she, she, she lives in the UK. Her husband is British. It's like, okay, Tasha, okay, we're going to do this. All right, do this for your warm-up. <laughs> Hugs and kisses. Here's your T-shirt. Would you like some water? You know, so she's like super hands-on. And then we go through the season, and we get to the NCAA championships, right? It's the biggest event you can have for collegiate sports and we are there and I am expected to do quite well I'm a freshman but I'm still expected to do quite well I'm warming up and Tommy Campbell is nowhere to be found like nowhere to be found and I'm like 
hold up, wait a minute, can someone get my coaching in? Like, like where is this guy right now? <laughs> you know? Because I'm expecting all this moral support and rah-rah and here, do this, and oh, your, your drills look good. And I'm expecting something, you know? And I am just blowing in the wind by my lonesome. And it was, that was my first culture shock because I thought, I just felt like completely deflated because doesn't he care? Why isn't he here? Why am I alone? I mean, I just felt so lonely. And I, and I was already homesick. Let's get it clear. Like, this is my freshman year. I was already homesick. So that just like compounded my loneliness almost, right? Because I wasn't used to that. And that really shocked me. And then when, yeah. you know, talking to him, it's like, you, why would I be there? You, you, what am I going to do? You got it now. Like we've done all the work. I don't need to be there. That was the attitude. Um, I don't know. I talked to Tony now. Mm. I still probably wouldn't agree with it, but that, that was the attitude. And that was the first time I really realized I was in a different world. Ain't nobody going to baby you around here, <laughs> you know? And I went, uh, yeah. it was funny because that, I think that, Already being homesick, I had a boyfriend at the time that I obviously wasn't able to see because he was in England. And I went out and got in the block. And I just think emotionally, mentally, probably physically I was fine, but emotionally and mentally I was shot. The gun went off. I went over the first hurdle and I just, I think I just said effort in my head, right? That's not what I told my coach when he asked me, what happened? Ah, oh, my hamstring, man. Oh, man. What? <laughs> my hamstring's killing me. <laughs> <laughs> but, really, <laughs> but really what happened was I just was shot. So I literally went over the first hurdle and I walked off the track. I didn't know about the, the there's this rule like honest competition or something like that where to avoid people trying to take up lanes to, to stop the other people from competing and getting lanes. You can't, like, just not give an effort. You have to make an honest, that's it, the mm-hmm. honest effort rule. So if you get in a race and you don't make an honest effort, they can exclude you from everything else, which means I would have gotten excluded from the 4 by 4 So my coach was, like, <gasps> crazy furious, you know. And, you know, that <laughs> process was just so dramatic because I was emotionally shot. They're asking me, what's wrong? What's going on with you? And then... You know, I remember, and this and this is when they understood what was going on with me as well. One of the coaches says, don't you see this is NCAA championships? This is the biggest thing in a year. I said, I don't even, I've never even heard of USC. I've never even heard of this university before, before I met the recruiting officer. I have no, yeah. no, yeah. no connection to this whatsoever, let alone what NCAA championships mean to you guys. Right. And then he said, you know what? When you said that, I I really got it. I really understood that you're not from here. You didn't grow up constantly seeing NCAA championships on TV, people working to be NCAA champions. This means this is like any other meet to you. And I was like, basically, yes. So that whole experience, I think, was enlightening, just not just for me, but also for the coaches who are recruiting international athletes that they come from a different world and you kind of also need to understand where they're coming from as well. But yeah, that was a kick in the gut. But I think that's where I really <laughs> changed my mindset and turned things around. Going through that, did that make you realize what you need as an athlete mentally to succeed or did that come later on down the line? I think... With every year that passed by, I understood more and more what I needed mentally, but I also understood what control I had of the situation, right? Like when I was 15, I remember racing at Crystal Palace in the indoor um, track, 60 meter hurdles. And I remember it was a senior race because my coach had bumped me up. She made me skip a level and just, hey, listen, you got long legs, let's just skip a level. And I was so nervous. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I was so nervous. I think Samantha Parkinson and people like that were in the race. I was so nervous. My arms were shaking in the blocks, right? And the guns always off. And they just gone. 
dusted me off, right? And then I went and I looked at the results. There, the results pinned up, you know, as they do. And I looked at the times and I'm like, mm. I could have at least come third, bare minimum, if I had just got myself under control. And then from that moment onwards, I said, I will never let my mind take me away from my abilities. Like, I'm never going to let, you know, being out of control of myself cause me to miss out on what I'm capable of doing. So from that point, I think even at that age, I just started to say to myself, listen, man, doesn't matter who's in the lane next to you. It's just another race. It's just another race. It's just another race. Even when I went to the Olympics, my first Olympics in 2000, everyone's all nervous. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And I, I literally was like from afar watching people and I was watching them all psych themselves out, get knocked out in heats mm. when they shouldn't have gotten knocked out. And I just said, you know what? Just, it's another 400 meters. Like, what's different? So more people are in, in the stands. So what? You know what I mean? It's still 10 hurdles. It's still one lap. Just go out and execute what you have to do. You'll be fine. And that's kind of the attitude I was taking. Now, obviously, in 2000, um, it was a different experience by then from what I had experienced in 1996 when I first went out to um, to to Los Angeles. So... All of this was building me and growing me. But by the second year, because I knew what to expect, I knew what was important to the team. I knew how I could play a role in that. I just started to go hard in the paint, you know, and I think that my second year was completely yeah. different. I was the highest scorer on the team because I did, I think I got first place in the four hurdles and, um, you know, at the Pac-10s and, and the high jump and the 4 by 4 So all my points combined was like a record number. So that's a big difference from walking off the track in in the year, in the in my freshman year, in the previous year. And um, mm. I think it really comes down to not the mistakes you make, not, you know, the hard times you go through. It's like, how do you make basically lemonade out of lemons? So you So you messed up. Yes, we all do. What are you going to do about it? Yeah. What are you going to, how are you going to change that? How are you going to shift that, turn that around? One of the things that comes to mind is, and I always kind of, you know, explore in my head is, you know, for athletes, is it better for them to actually be with somebody in the same sport um, in terms of a couple? Um, and if not, you know, if they are with somebody who, you know, is not, is a non-athlete, um, how does it work? So I guess um, my my question to you is what advice would you have for maybe, you know, a young up and coming athlete who does have a partner, um, but they're, they're going around, you know, um, around the world and basically, yeah, they're, they're finding it very, very, very difficult to balance, you know, making time for their partner, but equally also training and also, you know, doing the, the races. So what advice would you have to a young athlete? Well, you know, relationships are always tricky, right? You fall in love with who you fall in love with, whether they're in your world or they're not in your world. But I think the number one thing that you want to do as a partner in any relationship is one, be considerate, be compassionate and communicate. So there's three things for you. You can write them down, right? And you want to do yeah, that. You, you know, like you, that. You, you want them to understand your world, but you also want to understand their world. So if they're not in your world, and I see it happening over and over and over, is that you take for granted that, you know, hey, this is my world, I'm a sports person, you just got to deal with it. That's not fair. You know, that's not fair because if you were in their shoes and you're gallivanting across the country, I mean, let's face it, you go to the Olympic Games or any championships, we're talking about some of the most attractive people on planet Earth. They're fit as a fiddle, they're young, supple, limber, you know, all the things that make <laughs> partners in Absolutely. Like you're hanging around with these people on a daily basis. So, if you really want that partner to be on your side, you have to create a safe place for them, a place for them to feel comfortable. If they say, hey, listen, can you call me, be on the camera? Don't be like, why won't be on the camera, but we try to check, check on me for and all this kind of stuff. That is not going to create a foundation for a fruitful relationship. You've got to put yourself in the other partner's shoes right and and you got to think about how would you feel in their shoes so invite them into your world help them to understand what's going on like if they can if it's okay with your coach for them to come to practice and see the kind of pressures you're under to be at competition to see the kind of pressure you're under 
to um, be able to contact you when you're abroad. You're just going to make your life easier if you just play it in a, in a, in a way where you're really thinking about how the other person just do unto others as you would have them do unto you is really the bottom line for anything when it comes to relationships. And so, I mean, if you can be with someone who's already in your world, fine, but that can get tricky because if it doesn't work out, they're all up in your face every day, like, ah, still at practice to see this guy. Mm, Absolutely. You know, so it can be tricky on that end, but it's just being considerate, right? If you want your relationship to to last, you've got, you've got to be considerate. And, and that works both ways. Think about, you know, learn more about them. What's going on in their world when they're at home, when they're by themselves, are they feeling lonely? Are they, you know, where are they at? And, and learn about that and also invite them into your world. So uh, my advice, that's my advice really, communicate, keep the communication up, be considerate, be compassionate. Um, it's not easy to be the partner of someone who's gallivanting across the world, having a blast. When you're at home and someone's left, it's much harder when you leave because you've left to go do fun stuff, <laughs> you know? Yeah. They're sitting at home. If you're sitting at home and your girl or your man leaves, you're feeling like, oh, man, it's kind of kind of quiet around there. It's kind of lonely because <laughs> you're the one mm. sitting at home watching Blockbuster. Oh, they don't even show anymore. <laughs> <Coronation>. yeah. you're, <laughs> you're the one sitting at home watching the TV while they're doing all this fun stuff, meeting all their um, colleagues and all that kind of stuff. So... Uh, it just, it really comes down to, do you, do you want your relationship to last or not? If you don't, don't listen to what I say. If you do, then that's <laughs> my advice. <laughs> that's, that's the thing. You have to be as, you have to be as open and transparent as possible because if you, if cool. your partner is on the other side of the world, the moment you decide you're going to like say, you need to do this, you need to be on video call, you need to do all of that. They're just going to go the other way. Like you said, there's a lot of temptation. So yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and that's what I'm saying. Like, be transparent. I had a, my first boyfriend in the United States was very private, very secretive about stuff for no reason other than he just wasn't used to sharing um, when it came to relationships. And now he's older. He's like, I learned from you. Like, there's no reason for all that. Like, if I can share, just share. If that's a relationship you want to last. Like, you know, when you get older, you start realizing certain things aren't, <laughs> worth the hassle right you can keep a secret over nothing that needs to be kept secret and have a headache yeah. because they're going nah, 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 nah. or you can just be open and everyone's good yeah. so you choose you choose how how um, people are going to end up interacting with you talk to us about your first olympics the feeling um your first race um or leading up to the first race um what was your thoughts what was going through your mind so, like I said, I was still coming from the mindset of, you know what? It's another race. It's 400 meters, 10 hurdles. What's all the shenanigans? Why is everybody getting all hyped up for? Like, what's the big deal? <laughs> so, it was me and there were two other girls. And it's actually quite rare to have three solid um, female 400 meter hurdles going to a major championship at any given time for the UK. You might have one, you might have two, but three is, is not common. So three of us were going and I was in that mindset of like, okay, um, I know what to do. It's another race. They're just calling it the Olympics. I'm not going to get all bent out of shape because somebody called it the Olympics. Oh my God, it's the biggest event of the year. I'm not getting into all that. So I was very cool, calm and collected in terms of just focusing on executing my race. So it was funny because, well, it's not funny for them, but the other girls didn't make it out of the heat. They got knocked out. I actually went on to the final. And I am convinced that the distinct difference was in watching them and how they were getting like worked up about it being the Olympics. That was the key factor in why they didn't perform and why I was able to maximize on my potential at that championship. And don't get me wrong, my view of the Olympics versus like the meet around the corner in Birmingham, like, you know, is very different because once you walk into that, through that tunnel, they leave yeah. you out for the first time and you walk out into Sydney Stadium, which held 110,000 people, you feel this energy just like, oh, <laughs> I get it. Mm. That's what they call the Olympic spirit, right? Mm. Here it is. You're like, okay, reality check. <laughs> this, is, this is a serious situation in here. And it kind of like knocks you out, but then you still have to get back to business 
this is about executing. I don't want to train for my whole year or however long it's been up to that point. Because normally if you're going from Olympic to Olympic, it's been four years since the last one. I don't want to train and waste all that training. It's too hard. This is not darts. This is not bowling. This is like constantly in all kind of conditions, snow, rain, sleet. I mean, I've, I've trained block starts in snow with my hands literally freezing. I mean, literally freezing, get home and chill blame. I mean, extreme heat, people passing out, getting dehydrated, mm. all those kind of, I don't want to do all that and then go to a competi- competition and just throw it out the door because it's a big competition. That doesn't make sense to me. So I always worked very hard to make sure that what I was doing in training translated to the competition because that's the only place it really mattered. I think some people don't realise how important the mind is when it comes to major events as much as the training because there's been many, many athletes who have had all the potential in the world but then when it comes to the big occasion, they freeze and they never fulfill their potential. So it's so, so important how one um, manages to deal with, with the pressures of being in that environment. Right. Absolutely. I have studied mindset and, you know, you can find experiment after experiment that shows very clearly that how you think, visualization, all that stuff matters. It makes a difference. Like they'll take a group who just train. They'll take a group who just visualize and they'll take a group that um, train and visualize. Obviously, the group that trains and visualizes has had an advantage. But what's even more crazy is that the people who just visualize were able to almost perform equally as well as the people who who did the physical without the visualization. So that is telling you, how is it that just using my mind alone without even doing physical training can get me to the same standard basically as someone who's actually doing the training. So that is 100%. I honestly feel like mindset is actually more important than the physical, but people don't train. Like they'll go to train. Oh yeah. Nine o'clock training. Got to go there training. Nobody sets down and says, okay, this is 10 o'clock. I'm going to do my, my mindset work. I'm going to work on, building myself i'm going to write affirmations i'm going to spend some time in visualization a lot of people do not do that take it from you know if you don't take it from me take it from sally gunnell sally gunnell was the gold medalist in the women's 400 meter hurdles first time in history for the united kingdom it had been done um i was the second in history to make a final first black woman sally gunnell was the first ever she got the gold in barcelona olympics in 1992 I asked her, what do you think made a difference? Sally Gunnell said, Mm. mindset. She said, I visualize every single day. Every single day. She didn't say, oh, yeah, well, you know, once a week, I sit down and just think about my race. Or right before my race, I'd be thinking about, oh, what do I want to achieve? That's not what she said. She said, every single day, I would picture my race from every single lane twice. Now, when you, if you ever try to sit down and concentrate on anything, I don't know about you, I'm a little bit ADHD, but if you try to sit down and concentrate on <laughs> anything for as long as it would take to go through lane one, lane two, lane three, lane four, lane five, lane six, lane seven, lane eight, twice, that's a lot of work, right? And then she said she would picture herself like somebody would pass her, and then she would picture herself t- staying calm and then slowly catching them up, but she would always win the race. So what's the beauty of that story? She said when she got to Barcelona, she was so calm because she felt like she had been there before. It was nothing overwhelming. It was nothing crazy to her because she had seen it so many times. She got out into the stadium and she was like, it was like she was at home. She went on to win. um, uh, She went on to win those games. And she was also simultaneously the European uh, champion and the Commonwealth champion all at the same time, which hasn't been done before. So if somebody's doing that and you see those kind of results, eh, what do you say? You know, eh? <laughs> you're going to not work on mine. <laughs> right. Talk to anybody. Steve Harvey. Steve Harvey said he has never met someone successful who doesn't have a vision board. Now think about the kinds of people. Steve Harvey has a radio show 
where he interviews mm-hmm. famous people. He has a, he had a TV show where he interviews famous people. He's around. He has a, a non-profit organization. He's around highly successful people 24-7. He said he's never met one that has a vision board that does not have a vision board. So when you think about that, what is a vision board? It's pictures and words and, and everything that represents what you want to create in your life. That's mindset work, right? That's, that's getting clear about what you want and putting it in pictures because our subconscious mind works with pictures. So yeah. if you want to tap into your subconscious mind, you need to be seeing pictures. You need to visualize. You need to put it on a vision board. So if someone like that says, hey, use your mind, create pictures, put it on a board because I've never seen anyone I've met who's successful who doesn't have one, what do you do? You take their advice. Visualize, create a vision board. So, you know, it's not just me, Zillow Tasha from South London, who's, you know, managed to get on the podium at an Olympic Games. We're talking about uber successful people who are doing great things in this world, who are saying mindset matters. I want to dig deeper. So... I want us to go back 24 hours before a race um, because th- th- you mentioned so many things um, from, you know, in terms of mindset methods, but I want us to talk about you. So um, take us through the journey 24 hours before a race and all of the mindset methods that you use personally um, just for the listeners to hear and for them to actually, you know, take that advice from an Olympian from a bronze medalist and then they can um, implement it in their own life absolutely so 24 hours before a race you know a lot of work has already been done by this point but you still you know you still want to keep control so um 24 hours before a race i'm actually in the mode of controlling my energy right so i don't want to get too to blow all my adrenaline and, and get all hyped up and nervous and all that and start shooting out all all the energy that I need for the next 24 hours. So it's all about um, energy management at that point. So I will, um, you know, man, I last competed in 2009, but I would first be planning how the next day went based on the schedule. So if my race was at nine, I need to be probably up at five. I need to eat at six. You know, all those things I start getting regimented for. Right. Because, you know, at the end of the day, a race is an opportunity. Right. And if you an opportunity means nothing if you're not prepared for it. Right. It's, it's, it's worthless. Right. Yeah. You, in order to maximize on on an opportunity, you have to be prepared. So one of those things that I'll be doing in that 24 hours before a race is getting prepared. And some of that I would have done already with my coach. Okay, you know, we get there, we look at the schedule. This could be a week before whenever we get there. We say, okay, you're going to need to do this. So I'll go over that. Okay, I need to be on the bus by this time, bus by this time. I think the thing that there's like two, I don't know if it's for other athletes as well, from what I've heard it is, there's like two things in particular that kind of can shoot your, your adrenals up, like get your nerves out of control if you don't stop it. One of them is when you start putting your uniform on. Right. When you put your uniform on and you start buttoning on your pins, you're like, ah, man, this issue is getting real right now. <laughs> it's getting real. Right? So you, have to, <laughs> you have to start controlling that. Um, that at that point, I will then like because my <laughs> what Nathan, you laughing at me. That that point, I would want to <laughs> get my nerves in check. So that's when I would start self-talk and uh, visualization. So I'm putting on my numbers. I'm going through the whole process of, of uh, the call-up, seeing myself warming up, staying nice and calm. Uh, I hear them call for the 400-meter hurdles. Women, I calmly get myself together. I'm not in a panic. Everything's cool. I go into the call-up area. They're checking my spikes. Are my spike length too high? No, everything's cool. They're checking my numbers. I'm cool. I'm looking face-to-face with all the athletes. Other athletes, they're like two feet away from me. We're just sitting in front of each other. I'm still cool. All right, now we're single file. We're single file walking out to the track. I'm behind the best athlete in the world right now. But I'm cool. It's cool. I got my own lane. I got my... So I'll go through the whole process. Um, that keeps me in 
focus of what I've got to do. Not like, oh my God, oh my God, this is it. I've got the final right now. Oh my God. It's like, no, because you can't think two, two thoughts at one time. So if you let your, your mind run away with you, it's going to think what it wants to think. But you can pull it back and say, oh, no, 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 we're going to focus on this. I'm going to focus on what I can control. What I can control is how yeah. calm I am. What I can control is me going out onto the track. So I'll do the visualization. Um, and then from there, it's really just always about pulling back, pulling back, because your mind's going to try and run away from you. But you have to remember your, your mind can be like a little animal, like a little puppy, and you must train the puppy. Don't just think that because your mind does something that that's just how it is. It's not. It doesn't work like that. You can control the puppy. Say, no, 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 mind. I know you want to get nervous because, you know, you know, Sheila from, from Kazakhstan is doing these drills that make her look like the best athlete ever to have lived and is making you nervous. But don't <laughs> bring it back. <laughs> bring it back right here. Focus on you. What do you do well? How are you going to perform? And that's, you know, that's what I would be doing the 24 hours before. And you just literally keep doing it because there's so many things that you cannot foresee sometimes that will, that could throw you off. So like maybe I've been in the block and one of the officials might not like the way my hands are, will come and like move my hand. Bruh. Like, you know, and that can just like turn you up. Like, <laughs> Or I've had, I'm in the blocks, I'm in lane eight, and the cameraman is like right there on the edge of the track, and I can hear the click, 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 and I'm like, oh my God, what if I mistake one of these clicks for the gun? Like, you just, you got to really zero in, and you've got to be the one in control of your mind. So my whole process from 24 hours before is preparation. Because honestly, if you have a major event, most of the work, 90% of everything that needs to be done should have done way before 24 hours before months before talk to us a little bit about the dynamics of coach and yourself so not just the dynamics of coaching yourself but the dynamics of when you're moving from one coach to, to another how was it for you because i know a lot of people struggle with that when they're leaving a coach because maybe the way their coach is acted towards them or just the fact that they feel like they 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 are letting the coach down because they're, they're looking for pastures new. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I think in the UK in particular, in my experience, this whole thing of just staying with a coach till the day you die is like just ridiculous. Like at the end of the day, life is about progression and there are some coaches you can take you so far. And then at certain point you got to move on. They've taken you as far as you can go. Like you, you don't stay in a position at work. Like, Oh, I'm entry level secretary like just just filing papers and making tea and then someone says oh you've learned enough now to 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 move up to office manager no 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 i really like my office chair doing no you've moved on <laughs> you know the reality is we're all at different <laughs> levels right i'm at a different level as a yeah. junior i'm at a different level as a as a as a, as a under 20 i'm at a different level as a senior athlete and then a professional athlete different levels and there are coaches who are great at all levels but they're not common right so you got to get with who's an expert in that field and some of the a lot of the coaches who try to be great at all those different levels don't do them all well they do them average right versus a coach mm. listen i coach juniors and i kill the game i kill the game and then I, because I don't have an ego, I recognize when my junior needs to move to another coach. And this is who I recommend they move to because they're a specialist as under 20. Now, this one is a specialist for senior athletes. This one is a specialist for professional because they all require different things, right? And so as an athlete, it's funny that we have this conversation now because I was talking to my former coach who coached me, like I said, my ex-husband who coached me during... Um, during the 2008 Olympic Games. And I was actually talking to him uh, specifically about my career because I want to kind of write about it from his perspective and other people because I don't remember so many things, right? And I said to him, what do you think made me successful versus other athletes outside of talent? And he said, you were trusting. I said, what do you mean? 
you trusted your coaches when you went to a coach you didn't come with oh well you know when i was with with um coach henry coach henry was making me do this and i and that and when he when i did that i ran this fast time and like trying to bring all of my baggage into this next situation i would i would surrender to the new coach and their philosophy because that's the reason i'm there a lot of times athletes will want to bring oh well this worked for me then but I have a different training program altogether. You adding that in may not work over here, right? Now, granted, I will say this. The younger you are, the more that applies. But as you get older and you really understand your body more and you've studied your craft and you understand your sport and your event to a higher level, then those conversations with your coach should be more of a a, a dual-way conversation as opposed to when you're younger and you move. Like, if you're, if you're an under-15... And you're trying to tell your under 20 coach that, oh, you, you need to be doing what you were doing when you're under 15. Listen, mate, let me just tell you right now, what you're going to be, what's going to be required of you as an under 20 isn't even in the realm of what you did as an under 15. So that's just, just scrap that whole thing. Now, when yeah. you're a senior, you've been there for a while, yeah. you can say coach. And that's what, that's what my relationship with my coach eventually became. Okay, listen, I need more of this. Let's build this area. And it worked because we were in a dual thing, but, it's a very um, balanced thing. And if you have questions, I don't think there's any problem with um, having questions about your coaching and, and wanting to understand. But if you're moving from one coach to another, ask the questions in the right time and place and in the right manner. Like the last thing you want to do is pee off your, your new coach. with like, why are we doing this? I don't, don't yeah. want to say, you know, like, come correctly. Yeah. Like, hey, coach, I love to talk about <laughs> the practice to understand more about, you know, after training, understand more about the workout. And I really want to learn more. Like, come from that way because, you know, coaches are human being people too. You know, they have feelings and, and uh, you know, everyone wants to be communicated with in the right way. You briefly mentioned an interesting dynamic, which was um, your coach being ex-husband. So can you just talk to us about that journey and um, how did you deal with that balance? Yeah, you know, my coach was, you know, my husband at the time when for the majority of my career, we got married in 2004. No, I had my son in 2004. We got married in 2003, had my son in 2004. We started going through a divorce in 2008 during the Olympics. So, you know, again, like we talked about earlier, there's that <laughs> that tricky thing. Like when yeah. you have someone who's in your field that's your partner and then it starts going south, it can have a real like detrimental effect on your process. The good thing I think about myself and probably him too to a certain degree is that um, I was able, and men are usually really good at this, to compartmentalize. So although we were going through our struggles, athletics was athletics. Training was training. Olympic Games was Olympic Games. I'll be mad at you and, you know, deal with the shenanigans outside of here. But once we go through this gate, it's about that business, right? So that's kind of the, the mindset. And it's hard because those are real-life things. They have real-life feelings. Going through a divorce, you have a little three-year-old, you know, this is not a fun experience, but, you know, I think one of the things when I'm coaching people and when I'm doing personal development work with people, I always say, just like in a race, your objective is to get out ahead, get out ahead of a situation, right? Don't wait for a situation to come and then start thinking about how you're going to deal with it. We do it with everything else. People, especially in America, you have health insurance just in case something happens. You, you, you know, you have things in place that will help you stay healthy and be able to afford whatever you need to, to get treatment. We do it with cars. We have car insurance in case someone bangs you in the back and you've got your bumper falls off. You've got all this in preparation. But we don't do it with our goals necessarily. Like we don't have goal insurance. Okay, so, so if something happens, who's the person I want to be under a stressful situation? Who's the person I want to be when I'm faced with obstacles, setbacks? challenges like who do I want to be okay I really decided that I wanted to be a person who allowed myself the space to have the emotion because trying to suppress the emotion is not what works like okay I'm just gonna be tough that doesn't work that just ends up in a big chocolate mess mm -hmm. later on right uh what works is 
saying, listen, I want to be the kind of person who gives myself the room to have the emotions, but also is able to take right action at the same time. So for example, um, 2008 Olympic trials, I did not win. I was devastated because I felt like they had to choose between me and Terry Shakes Rayton. And I thought they're going to choose her. No doubt. I just had not been performing well that year. I was a chocolate mess. I was bawling my eyes out. But I didn't try and stop myself. And, Get yourself together, Tasha. Pull your straps up. Like, I didn't try and do all that stuff because I'm a human being. I need to let that out. I need to let out my frustration. I need to let out my sadness, right? But I also said, okay, I'm going to give myself time to cry. But at this point, tomorrow, I'm going back to focusing on as if I'm going anyway. And so I just started focusing on I'm going anyway. I'm, I started visualizing myself even more. I would play this song, uh, Lincoln Park and Buster Rhymes. Together we made it. We made it even though we had our backs up against the wall. I put that on and I just like visualize, visualize, visualize myself crossing the line. So I was still, I was sad. I was not sure. This was the first time my destiny wasn't 100% in my hand. I was not sure what the outcome would be, but I was still acting as if it was already done. Because I could not fathom the amount of work I had done, the amount of visualization I'd done. I'd already seen it as far as I was concerned. I could not fathom the possibility that I wasn't going to go. It just didn't make sense. I'd done that much mindset work. No other result made sense in my mind. And so the only thing that makes sense if you've done that much work is that you then act accordingly, right? So if you believe you're supposed to be there, the time between me not winning the championships and them letting us know who was going to go to the Olympics, I just kept carried on acting as if I already knew it was a done deal. So I'd be doing my visualization as normal, my training as normal. And I think that's key. Like the more you invest in seeing the thing coming to fruition, you, but you just believe so wholeheartedly that some way or another, this is going to work out. Right. And so, so that's, that was, that was my mindset with that. And with the, the ex-partner, we, we, we still worked well. We knew how to navigate the fact that we had issues that were personal, that had nothing to do with business. And, and so, you know, it's important to, to try to put things in their appropriate lane, but still give yourself room to have a human experience to to be sad to be to grieve a loss or whatever um comes your way you have reached the end of part one with our interview with natasha danvers this was an interview longer than normal and therefore we have decided to divide it up into two parts we will be releasing part two in the upcoming days so just be on the lookout for that and we really hope you enjoyed part one as always thank you to those who have listened and please continue to share the platform until next time stay blessed and stay healthy